theyeshiva.net. So good morning and welcome everybody. Today's class is dedicated in honor of Rina Schleifer, a dear neighbor and pillar of our community here in Muncie, Rachel Basbela, in honor of her birthday on the sixth day of Shvat. Happy birthday, Mazel Tov. A very special mother who devotes her life to her family and to people in need. And one of the inspiring and inspired pillars of our community. May Hashem grant her many more years of health, happiness, abundant nachas with prosperity and joy, nachas from all of her children and grandchildren, dedicated with love by her children. So, Mazel Tov and Yom Oledet happy birthday and an amazingly successful year, and thank you very much. We're going to explore today what would seem like a simple posik, a simple verse in Parshas B'Shalach, and then we're going to learn a piece of the Svasemes on this verse. Let's give context. Parshas B'Shalach deals, of course, with the departure of the Jewish people from Egypt. They cross the sea. They enter into what's called Midbar Sin, the Sinai Desert, and there they find themselves hungry. Apparently, the matzah that they took out of Egypt, or the dough that they took out of Egypt and baked in the desert, was now gone, and they were craving and yearning and crying for bread. Some complained to Moshe, we were sitting in Egypt, we were sitting on a big pot of meat, and now you took us out to the to desert just to die here in the desert. And that's when Hashem tells Moshe to tell the Jewish people that He's going to give them what we call man, which was a daily portion of food and nourishment and nutrients with which they would actually survive and live and thrive for the next 40 years in the desert Every morning they came out to collect the manna from heaven, as it's called, the lechem and hashemayim, the bread that came from heaven. Let's see how the actual story is described in Chumash. In your source sheets, you see the first pasuk b'shalach, perik tazayim pasuk yidalus, pasuk yidalat, Exodus sixteen verse fourteen. When the fall of dew lifted. Over the surface, there, over the surface of the wilderness lay a fine and flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. Vayiru, the next verse, verse 15, B'Shalach Tezayin, Posek Tezvav. Vayiru B'nei Yisro. When the Jewish people saw this, Vayyimru Ishalachiv, they said to one another, Manhu. I know there's different translations. I'll give the translation of the Rajbam. When they saw this, they said to one another, Manhu, what is this? What is this? Ki mahu, because they did not know what it was. So Moshe says to them, This is the bread which Hashem, God, has given you to eat. Now, this is a very interesting Pasuk. At the surface, it would seem a little superfluous. Why is it important to record this conversation between some of the Jews, like, what is going on here? What is this? And Moshe is saying, oh, eat it. A 
apparently Moshe told them, it's clear, that there's going to be bread that's going to come down from heaven. Then they see the strange thing. They didn't know what it is. It falls down from heaven. They see it. So Moshe could tell them, this is what you're supposed to eat. This is edible. (laughs) Don't just look at it. Enjoy it. Consume it. Feed it to your children. Feed it to your family. But the Torah introduces this very interesting exchange that they gave it a name. They gave it a name Mon. Why? Because they didn't know what it is. So Rashi says that Mon actually means a gift of food. A portion of food that's gifted to you is called Mon. There's a famous term in Hebrew called Mone. It's like a portion of food that's gifted to you. So Rashi says, well, they, they saw it to each other, manhu, this must be some portion of food, hachanas mazin, some, some portion of food was allocated, was prepared for us. Because they didn't know what it is, meaning they knew it was food, but they didn't know the name for it. So because they didn't know the name for it, they called it food, right? Somebody asks you, what did you eat for breakfast today? What did they serve? So say, I don't know, but it was food. So that's what they called. They called it food because they didn't have a specific name. That's Rashi's interpretation. His grandson, the Rajbam, says something very interesting. He says, man in Egyptian is what? Like in Hebrew, ma, what? Ma, mazeh, what's this? Man in Egyptian language was what? So he says, these are Jews who came from Egypt. They naturally spoke the Egyptian language as well. So they turned to each other and they said, manhu, like mahu, what is this? What is this? And the Torah explains. Why would they say man? Because they didn't know what it is. Because they didn't know what it is. So therefore they said, what is it? Which is also a little bit of a strange way of telling the story. It's like, it's like I'll tell you a story and I say, this fellow looked at something. He didn't know what, right? So he turns to his friend and he says, what is this? And you know why he said, what is this? Because he didn't know what it is. <laughs> Maybe it should have been a little bit in a different order. He comes out, he sees this, he doesn't know what it is. So he tells, every, he tells his friends, what is this? But the Torah says, they said, what is this? Because they didn't know what it is. Okay, that's why they said, what, it is. what is it? And the, and the Rajbam says that's where it got the name. The name is Mana, or in, Russian, in Hebrew it's called Mon. Why is it called Mon? According to Rashi, because they called it food. Because it was food. And according to the Rajbam, they called it Man because they didn't know what it was. So they said, Manhu, what is it? And that became the name. Now that is very interesting. According to Rashi, I understand the name of man is food, even though we don't know what type of food. Okay, it's called food. Especially our, teach, our sages teach us in Masech Yuma at the end that the man allowed itself to be tasted right, with every type of taste. So I guess it's every type of food. You don't give it a name. You can't call it a pickle or a cucumber. You can't even call it sushi or chicken or spare ribs or challah. You can't call it fish. It's not a protein, a carb, a vegetable, because whatever, whatever you want, you want. It's every type of food. According to the Rajbam, though, it's fascinating that the name is really indicating what. The, the word man means what. Why is, who names anything what? <laughs> this is called a mouse. This is called a, a piece of paper. This is called a book. But this food was called man. You know why it was called man? Because they said manhu, what is it? That became the name that stuck with it because when they saw it, the first impression, the first question was, what is it? That became the name of this food for 40 years. Until today, we call it man, which means what? In other words, the name, it is probably we don't have any other name like this. The name of this particular food is nameless. The name is what?
The name is a question. The name is not an answer or an explanation. The description of this food is about the fact that we have no description. That is fascinating. And that becomes the name. Moshe could have said, okay, let's call it bread, lechem, maybe heavenly bread, lechem and hashemayim. Rabbi Nachem Azariah Fanu, Rabbi Memri Fanu says that on the man they made a blessing. Hamoitzi lechem min hashemayim. Not hamoitzi lechem in aretz, hamoitzi lechem in hashemayim, bread from heaven. I know some of you were thinking brachas were instituted later, there's the brachas before eating, okay, but that's not for now, it's a separate sugya. So what does Moshe tell them? When they don't know what it is, so Moshe says, oh, this is the bread. You remember God said, this is the bread that he told you, that he gave you to eat. Now you know this is the bread. That's the posik. Comes the Sfasemes. Sfasemes, as you know by now, hopefully, if you have been listening to the Shurim of the last few weeks, is the Hasidic work written by the second Geri Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib, of Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter, who passed away in the year Tofresh Samachay, 1905, on Hei Shvat, the fifth day of Shvat. And Svasemes is a Hasidic work on Chumash and on the holidays that was written by the second Gary Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Alter. So today we're going to learn a very small piece of the Svasemes. Most of his pieces are pretty short and brief and concise. But this literally in the, in, in the Svasemes, in the original, in the original work, it's Beshalach Tofresh Samach Beis, and it's literally, uh, I don't know, it's like Mamash uh, a few lines, as you see here, a few lines, but it reveals a, a marvelous interpretation and depth in this Pasuk. Let's see inside. You see, Svasemes Beshalach. Tofresh Samach Beis, Tofresh Samach Beis would be 1902. Actually, in the Sefer it says Samach Beis, Samach Gimel, which is either 1902 or 1903, or maybe he repeated it both of those times. Tofresh Samach Beis, 1902. Just for the, just for, for history purposes, Tofresh Samach Beis, 1902, happens to be the year when the Lubavitcher Rebbe was born. He was born in Nissen, Yudalov Nissen, Tofresh Samach Beis, far away from Poland. He was born in Ukraine in a city called Nikolaev, but that was the same year, 1902. Says this They call it man because they don't know what it is, so Moshe says this is the bread. Pirush. Let me explain how you have to read this Pasuk, and then it becomes extremely clear, number one, why this exchange is so important to have been inserted into God's blueprint for life, that they didn't know what it is. Number two, why this becomes the name of the food that they don't know what it is, man. says, Peter's explanation is as follows. This very fact that they didn't know what it is, Hu halechem asher Hashem. This is the bread that God has commanded you to eat. Meaning we are not reading the verse, the Pasuk, in its full depth and richness. We look at it and it's a, we read it. One person tells his friend, what is this? They don't know what it is. So Moshe is simply identifying what it is. Moshe is saying that, that weird thing, that strange entity, it's bread. This is the bread that God commanded you to eat. 
That's on a very basic level. Comes as Fasemus and says, Moshe is saying something much deeper. They say, we don't know what this is. We cannot wrap our brains around this. We don't understand what it is. So he says, this is the bread that God wants you to eat. What's the bread that God wants you to eat? This very experience that I don't know what it is, this is the bread, this is the food Hashem wants me to consume. He, we're not just talking about the physical properties of the man that he wants me to eat. No. This ability to be able to say, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. This can become your strongest, most powerful source of nourishment. This can become your greatest source of nutrition and fulfillment and satisfaction. What could become that statement, that inner awareness and declaration of, I don't know what this is. What does this mean? There's an expression that comes yet from the medieval times of Jewish history. This is from a sefer called Pchinois Oilam, also quoted by the great Jewish philosopher Rabbi Yosef Olbo in his sefer HaIkrim, section 2, chapter 30. The ultimate knowledge is that I don't know. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate knowledge. There is knowledge, and then there is the ultimate knowledge. The ultimate knowledge is that I don't know. Says the Sfasem, is that's what Moshe was telling them. You know what will become the most powerful bread that will feed you, that will sustain you? Is that ability to be able to say, Manhu, what is this? Mahu, what is it? Ma, what is this? That is Tachlis Ayadiyah. That means you have reached the ultimate bread, the ultimate source of nourishment, the ultimate source of awareness, the ultimate source of wisdom. That's tachlis hayadiyah. Usually we say knowledge is about knowing, grasping, understanding, internalizing, absorbing, wrapping my brain around it to the best of my capacity. A greater mind can absorb more, a greater mind can hold more, a greater mind can innovate more, can develop more, can discover more. But tachlis hayadiyah, What's the ultimate lechem? What's the ultimate bread? What's the ultimate knowledge? The ultimate knowledge is that I know that I don't know. That we don't know. Why is this the bread that God wants you to eat? Because this becomes the entire pattern. The entire taluchas is the entire uh, parade, the entire movement, the way of the Jewish people experiencing life in the desert. As the Pasuk says, The famous verse in Yirmiya, chapter 2, right in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 2. God says, I remember the grace of your youthfulness, the love when we just got connected to each other, following me in a desert, in a land that was not sown, that was not planted, Be'eretz lo'izirua. 
In other words, their entire journey in the desert was a journey that was all about this training to eat this type of bread, to become nourished by this type of bread. What type of bread? The bread that you say in it, manhu, what is it? Which now gives us a very powerful understanding why the name is man, which means what? Who gives a name? Why does that name stick? The name doesn't say anything. The name is just a question. What? That's not a name. Imagine I would call a horse what, and a donkey what, and a lion what, and a hyena what, and a cat what, and a dog what, and an elephant what. The names would become useless. The whole point of a name is to identify, to give it a feature, to give it perspective, to confer characteristics upon it. This is called a table, and this is called a chair, and this is called a cup, and this is called a computer, and this is called a book, this is called a mouse, and this is called a telephone, and this is called a speaker. I'm just looking around, and this is called a window, and that's called a tree, and that's called a deer, (laughs) or a groundhog, or a squirrel, or a nice sliding pond, or a home. The whole purpose of names is to give things definitions so we should be able to communicate with each other. Language is what allows us to define reality and to communicate reality to each other. What type of name is this what? Says the Svasemes, this is exactly what the man was about. Moshe says, you don't know. This is the bread God wants you to eat. This is what he wants to, what he wants to help you to absorb. And this could become your greatest, ultimate, and deepest source of awareness and knowledge. What does this mean? It says, This is the meaning of the Medrash. The Medrash says, it says, Medrash, Vayikra Rabbah, Medrash Rabbah Vayikra, Parsha Chavzayin, section 27 in the beginning, quotes a verse from Tehillim, Adam u'behemet eshiyah Hashem. Adam b'schuz behemet eshiyah Hashem. David HaMelech King David says in Tehillim chapter 37, a human being, I said 37, 36, a human being and a behemah and an animal, may God help, says the Medrash, Adam will be helped b'schuz behemah. doesn't only mean help people and help animals. The person will be helped in the merit of the animals. Amru Yisrael, the Jewish people said, Rebbeinu Shalolam, ka'adam anachnu. We're humans, but you should help us like a behemoth. Because we gravitate after you, we follow you like an animal. A domesticated animal follows its master, whether it's the cow, the ox, the, the sheep, the goat, etc. And the Svasamas continues. This is what our sages say. And here he's referring to a Gemara. Take a look. The Gemara speaks there about the fact that it's derogatory to call a person an animal, a behemoth. It's, it's inappropriate. A person is a person, not a behemoth. Right? Calling somebody a behemoth is, is, is it's inappropriate. Asks the Gemara, what do you mean? We have a pasuk in Tehillim, Adam Hashem. An Adam and a Behema, God should help. So we see clearly that the definition of Behema is very complementary. So the Gemara says, And Rabbi Yehuda explained the name of Rav. 
What does this mean? It's referring to a person. This is referring to people who may be very clever in their minds. They may have the ability to be sly and, and shrewd and, and cunning. Arumen means very clever in their das. And nonetheless, they remain humble and simple like animals. That's what David HaMelech is saying to him. Adam o Hashem. An Adam who nonetheless becomes like a behemoth. This is the person you can help. This is the person who gets real help in life, who's really elevated in life. So what do we see here? We see here that a behemoth is actually very, very complimentary. And the Gemara explains that it depends. If the person is just called a behemoth, it's not complimentary. If he's called an Adam and a behemoth, meaning he's just a behemoth, a behemoth. That's Lamatam and Adas. But an Adam, that's below Das. But an Adam who's called a behemoth, this is already Lamailam and Adas. You're an Adam, you have Das. You can be very wise and perceptive and understanding. But now you're transcending the intellect. That's actually very complimentary. Now, this is the end of the Fasamas. As usual, it is so cryptic. It's so brief. It's so concise. It's very hard to understand what Fasamas is teaching here. So I chose another paragraph from Tanya. Tanya chapter 18, that I also want to learn with you inside. And I think that will give us a, 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 a larger, broader understanding of what the Sfasemis is saying, and also help this apply it, help us apply it in our lives. Tanya chapter 18, by the Balatanya, Rabbi Shnei of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, the author of Shechonar Harav and the Tanya, is discussing what a Muna is. What's a Muna? Muna faith. The way we usually translate faith is, I believe, why do I believe? So some people believe maybe with blind faith. They were just told to believe this, so they believe it. There's obviously a deeper concept of faith discussed at length in Sefer HaIkrim, Rabbi Yosef Albo, who says what we call a muna means, it's a truth, but it's not necessarily a truth that I could see with my eyes and touch with my fingers. So I call, I call it faith because... There is an element of, uh, of, uh, of a deep conviction that comes from a person realizing that this is true, even if I cannot see it with my eyes. So we call it emuna. I accept it. There may be a lot, a lot of proof for it. But because I can't prove it, I can't prove its existence in a laboratory, I can deduce it from other things. It's called emuna. That's another explanation in faith. But really... The Balatanya says that's not really the definition of a Muna because that ultimately falls into the category of intellect. Yeah. How do we know electricity exists? Do we need faith? Nobody ever saw electricity, but we see the symptoms of electricity. And we explain those symptoms based on defining electricity, even though nobody, nobody ever saw electricity. So the concept of a Muna, where I can't see it with my eyes, but I can prove it, through various methods, is ultimately intellectual. So therefore, he goes and he explains a deeper dimension of Amuna. He says, V'lechein kol Yisrael, all the Jewish people, whether they're educated or not educated, and remember when the Tanya was written in the 1700s, there was no system of education for women at the time. So most of the girls and the women stayed home, and they received a very, very basic education in reading, even if they did, from their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts. It was just a very different culture, not like today. I'm saying this because you will see his words and you should understand them in the context of the mid-1700s. 
therefore, call Yisrael all the Jewish people, whether they're literate or illiterate, educated or uneducated, enlightened or not very enlightened, fluent in the language and scholarly with materials or not. But the fact is, all the Jewish people are filuhanoshim, even women who at that time were not given a thorough education at all. And va'amiyar, it's even those people, whether men or women, who were quite ignorant in terms of scholarship and literacy, but the fact is, hey, ma'aminim basham. All the Jewish people have emuneh in Hashem. What does emuneh in Hashem mean? What does it mean to have faith in Hashem? She'emuneh hilemailem in adas v'asag. Emuneh transcends knowledge and comprehension. Ki pesi yamin l'chol dovar v'orum yavin dovar l'ashura. Shleim HaMelech tells us in Mishle a very sharp verse, a fool believes everything. A wise man, a clever man, he needs to understand something very well. So what do we see from here? We see from here that Amuna is not connected to Havana. There is understanding, that's an Aru. And then there's the fool who's Yamin L'chaldava. Now, the Alter Rebbe seems to be say, contradicting himself here because are you extolling Amuna or you're belittling Amuna? First you extol Amuna and you say it's higher than Das, it's higher than Gamma. Then you tell me fools believe everything. Smart people don't believe, they try to understand. So why you so, so Amuna is, is, is inferior to knowledge. Why do you say it's higher than knowledge? You don't say that a fool is superior to a wise person. This Pusik that he brings in here is very, very difficult to comprehend before we continue reading the Tanya, because you're literally undermining your very premise. You're, you're, you're extolling the virtue that every Jew has a moon, and a moon is beyond das, it's beyond asaga, it's beyond intellectual knowledge and comprehension, and therefore it's does not reserved for the intellectual. It's not reserved for the one who knows more data. It's not reserved for the brilliant person. Got it. And then you tell me, you know who believes everything? Fools. And we understand why. If you're a fool, you believe. Because you're either intellectually inept or lazy. But if you're an Arum, if you're a smart Chevreman, Yavid double Asher, why are you believing? Investigate it for yourself and find out if it's true or not. And that's often what you will say, what, we, what they, people call the th- scientific method. Scientific method is you investigate it, you inquire, you test it again and again and again, and you see how viable, you see how authentic it is. And you have to be ready to dismiss an old theory and relegated to the dustbin because of refutations. In other words, the method of examining something based on its own merits, seeing how viable your ideas were, your theories were, how useful, how consequential, and being open to the fact that we discover new things every day and some things we held true for thousands of years are relegated to the garbage, to the dustbin. That method is a, is a good method. It's a blessed method. It allows for tremendous progress in so many areas of life. But now the Alter Rebbe adds something very powerful. He says, But relative to Hashem, who transcends seichel and das, who transcends intellect and intellectual knowledge, the expression of the Zoyer is no thought can grasp him at all. So when you're facing the reality of Hashem, everybody is like a fool. Why? Because even the most brilliant, brilliant mind 
has no way of wrapping its brain around Hashem because Hashem is the creator of intellect. Hashem is the absolute undefined infinity that transcends matter, transcends space, transcends time, and transcends anything that can be defined intellectually and grasped intellectually. That's what the Zohar says. No machshava can grasp him. No thought can grasp him. Not because I'm dumb. Not because I'm lazy. Not because I'm not trying. I can reach the ultimate pinnacles of my knowledge. You can have the most brilliant, brilliant scientist, physicist, astrophysicist, cosmologist, sage, saint. But no thought can grasp the source of everything. Because thoughts are already part of the world of language. Language defines. Language limits. Language puts everything in a box. Now, the box here may be huge and sophisticated and brilliant and amazing, but language and thoughts and ideas confer definitions and descriptions on that which they seek to unravel and dissect and convey and explain. And that's the beauty of wisdom. That is the beauty of intellect. That is the virtue of das. The ability to be able to take things apart, to be able, the ability to be able to give things names, to be give things descriptions. This is what makes, this is what creates so much. This is what allows so much progress in our society. It's all about names. You give things names, which means you give them definitions, which comes from understanding them, which comes from putting them into a certain box, intellectual box, that you can describe and you can articulate and you can explain its impact on other things and it's the consequences of it. And you could look at where it comes from and what caused it and what it may lead to. This is all part of what we call the method of trying to understand something, of grasping something. If a person is learning a piece of Gemara and there's a statement and then there's a question and then there's a proof and then there's an answer and then there's a refutation to the answer and you're using here the logical methods in order to be able to understand if something is true, if something is false, if something makes sense, if something is just, something is unjust, etc., comes the Balatanya and says, all of this is amazing. The challenge is, or the truth is, it's not so much a challenge, that Hashem is leis machshavet fisabekla. There's no thought that can grasp Him. There's no idea that can define Him. There's no way that I can put God into any form of a box. Hashem is not some mathematical equation that I can discuss intelligently or even the author of a book, or the author of a mansion, or the composer of a symphony. He is that. He's the author of a book, and he's the composer of a symphony, and he's a brilliant scientist, the creator of science. But all of those descriptions and definitions are all my descriptions and my definitions that perhaps say part of the truth, but they don't capture the truth of it. So the Alter Rebbe says, so when it comes to Hashem, the most sophisticated thing you could say is that I'm like a fool. So now, can I relate to it? This is emuna. Emuna is a skill that when it's cultivated, it allows you to detect and relate to ultimate reality, which is beyond intellectual comprehension. 
Emuna is not blind faith, opium for the masses, for people who are weak and unintelligent and lazy and they want to be in a cult and they want to be told everything to do and they don't want to explore and they don't want to examine and they just like to eat the kugel of their grandmother without questioning it. That's not what real Emuna is. Real Emuna is the eyes of the soul. It's a skill within each and each of our souls that when cultivated, it allows us to experience ultimate reality. Not through an intellectual persuasion. Not through an intellectual recognition. There is room for that too. There is that which I can reach through my intellectual mind higher and higher and higher. And that depends on the mind. But the Alter Rebbe says, Amunis kol Yisrael. This is not connected to the mind. It's not connected to how keen and profound my brain is. Because what is Amunah? Amunah is the fact that in each soul lay an openness, an antenna. You can call it the sixth sense. There's a sixth sense. Amunah are the eyes of the soul. The eyes of the soul. The body has eyes that allows us to perceive physical reality through our retina. And the soul has eyes that allows us to see and experience ultimate reality. Not by understanding its properties or understanding the nature of God's existence, that's also a major form of knowledge and awareness, and that's the whole discussion within philosophical work, Sifri HaMechker, Machshavis Yisrael, etc., throughout the generations. But the real Amunah is the eyes of the soul, the skill of the soul, which always exists, but my eyes can be closed, my ears can be plugged. I have to clean out my ears. My ears can have wax. They don't allow me to hear. I have to clean out my ears. I have to open my eyes. And I have to open the eyes of my soul to be able to perceive this reality, which is a transcendent reality, an infinite reality. And if I try to relate to it with my brain and wrap myself around it until I understand it, I'm failing myself because I'm depriving myself from a relationship with the truth of the infinity. I'm trying to reduce it into categories that make sense to me. The Alter Rebbe says, you don't have to do that. And on this, there's a Pasuk in Tehillim. David HaMelech says, I think it's Ayin Bez or Ayin Gimel, Va'ani, listen to his interpretation. Va'ani var, I am ignorant. I don't know. I've been like an animal with you. I've been like animals with you. But I'm always with you. How do we understand this Pasuk? David HaMelech is really uh, humbling himself. I'm ignorant. I know nothing. In fact, I'm like a behemoth. I know as much as the puppy knows. I know as much as the animal, the animal here outside of my home knows. How much does that animal know? Are you going to consult that animal about questions, mathematics, or what to do about the corona? or questions about making peace in the world, or questions about the climate change, or questions about politics. That animal has a certain intelligence, no question. Intelligence to survive, to procreate, to do what it has to do for its environment. And those skills are very impressive. But nonetheless, you can't compare the cognitive ability of an animal to the cognitive ability of a person. There's a reason that animals did not build homes and build hospitals and go to the moon. Or build airplanes. Animals are animals, people are people. 
Cubs dove and Amalekh says, I'm like an animal. I am so ignorant like an animal. And he says, Vani and I'm always with you. So most people would say, even though I'm like an animal, I'm holding on to you, says the Alter Rebbe. No, Kaloimar. Let me tell you what he means. Shabazeshani Baru You know why I'm always with you, Hashem? Because I am ignorant, because I'm like an animal. If I would see myself as Mr. Sophisticated, I could never be with you because I would have to reduce you to me. But because Anibar, because Behemis Ayisimach, therefore Anitamid Imach, therefore I can always hold on to you. Therefore I can always be with you. Because the only way to be with you is when I'm completely open to your infinity. When I don't feel compelled to reduce you to my finite expectations, limitations, understanding, and awareness. Because, you hear the title of the Balatanya, <laughs> because Anibar Velayed, because Behemis Ayusimach, therefore Vanitamadimach, possession Anibar Behemis Anitamadimach. If I would be Mr. Intelligent, I can't be Tamid Imach. I turn Imach into me. I create God in the I create God in the image of me rather than create me in the image of God. And not because his intelligence is not extraordinary and dazzling and brilliant and titanic and magnificent. No, you may have a mind that is beyond one of the greatest minds that ever lived, the greatest mind that ever lived. It's not the problem of your mind. It's lace machshavat fisa beiklal. It's that Hashem's reality infinitely transcends intellect. No brain in the world, and no thought in the world, and no language in the world, and no idea in the world can capture it, can define it, can articulate it. All these are part of creation, and therefore they have no way of capturing the Creator. So David HaMelech says, Vani var and therefore Vani tamidimach. I can always be with you. Because I don't have the need to reduce you to me, to take your infinity and limit it and put it into my box. I can always remain open to you. That's what real emuna is. Emuna is the awareness that life is not about logic. That God is not about logic. Of course, we try to be logical people and it's a good thing and we try to plan things and we try to be intelligent and it's great to learn and to explore and to understand whatever you can understand. In fact, we're obligated to do that. The Rambam begins his entire Sefer Mishnah Torah, Yisoyda Yisoyda Zvamuda Chachmas, Leida Sheyesha Matsurishin Vomamsi Kol Nimsa, Vichalanim Tsoyim Mishamayim Vartsa Mashabinem Lenim Tsuela Mamitasi Matsa. Translation The foundation of foundations, the pillar of wisdoms is to know that there is a source to all existence. And he brings all of existence into reality and everything that exists in heaven and earth and everything in between heaven and earth did not emerge only from the truth of his existence. And if you will ascend on your mind that he doesn't exist, continues Maimonides, nothing else could exist. That's Allah base in Mishnah Torah, right at the beginning of Ramah. The Rambam says, Mitzvah says, say, Leida, to know. And he says, it's a Mitzvah. I am God, your God. He says, it's a Mitzvah. Say, to know and to understand. So a person ought to use their mind to the fullest, 
to understand whatever we could understand about life and about reality and about the miracle of life. And of course, to learn Torah and understand Torah where you have to use your mind constantly and use it to the maximum ability. But then there's something called Amunah. And what's Amunah? Amunah is, as Alter Rebbe says, understanding hakal kipsoyim etzloyuzbarach. That when it comes to ultimate reality, my mind suddenly becomes an obstacle to reality. I become like a fool. And the reason I become like a fool is because my mind has no way of grasping this reality. And this is where I have to open myself up and become comfortable with infinity and allow my intellectual ego to surrender in the infinite embrace of the divine love that transcends what my brains understand, what life is supposed to look like, what life, what a good life is, what a bad life is, what it means I'm successful, what it means I'm a failure. Where did the Jews develop this skill? Where did we get this ability? Comes this Vasemis and says, this was the gift of the man. This is the food we ate 40 years. Who names a food what? Imagine you come to the grocery store, there's a new food they're trying to sell. What? Question mark. That's the name man. You know why? Because the food that they were eating for 40 years was the food that inculcated within them the ability to be able to open themselves every single moment to the infinite love and embrace of Hashem falling into his bosom. Did not make sense to go in a desert that was not planted. There was no viable way to live and to sustain your family. Water to drink and food to eat. The whole thing seemed completely strange. Nonetheless, the Jewish people did it. Why did they do it? This was the ability, this, is the, this represents the ability of in the person to be able to say, yes, I have a certain way how I understand things to be. I have maybe a certain way how I would like things to be. But nonetheless, Amuna is the deep conviction and awareness and experience that life and life's secrets and life's journeys transcend anything we can wrap our brains around. And if I try to make sense out of everything and to put it into my boxes and to put it in my logic, into my logical structures and to categorize it and to put it into my filing cabinet so I could tuck it away smoothly, what do I do? I actually cut myself off from the flow of life. And it becomes a very difficult life, even a more difficult life. And the reason for that is because very often things don't fit into those boxes. So what happens then? I have to either go into denial. I literally have to deny what's going on. Or I have to repress and not feel. Or I have to amputate a certain part of me. Or I have to start concocting ludicrous ideas. Or I become a very depressed soul. Very despondent, very sad. Because the only way to make sense of these, this craziness is by somehow destroying my spirit and destroying my dignity and self-confidence. But there's another way. And the other way is the ability to be able to feel whatever I'm feeling 
and then look at the pain of life and say that there's something here that I don't wrap my brain around. And you know what? I don't have to wrap my brain around it. And I just want to open myself up to this journey into the realm of infinity. I don't need to make sense of it. I don't need that my logic should be able to say, ah, it's perfectly sense. Those things in life that make beautiful sense and are appreciated by our minds, we should celebrate. That's a great gift. But much of it does not. And I don't have to deny it. I don't have to repress it. I don't have to force it into my box. On the contrary, I have to open myself up to this invitation that God has given me to be able to go on a journey into a desert, into a place that's not planted. We are all summoned into this journey. It's a journey into a midbar. Sometimes life looks like a desert. I don't see the highway that's going to take me through this jungle. I don't see the meaning of this journey. It doesn't seem organized. It seems chaotic. It seems like I'll get lost here. It doesn't seem like I'm going to survive here. But God says, I'm here with you. I am here with you and you're here with me. And because I don't have to reduce it to my intellect, I can always, always be with you. I'm always open to infinity. I'm never stuck in my brain. I use my brain as much as I can, but then I open myself up to that which transcends my brain, which my brain doesn't have to figure out. My brain doesn't have to make sense of it. My brain doesn't have to say, it's going to work out this way and this way. I may say, I don't know how it's going to work out. I'm going into a desert. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't have to know how it's going to work out. Maybe it's not going to work out in a way that my knowledge will be able to figure it out anyway. Can I still go into that desert with joy, with serenity, with tranquility? When I cultivate this attitude, I can march into that desert with a sense of equilibrium, with inner composure, with tranquility. Why? Because I'm not busy fighting with my emotions and saying, no, it's not really bad. Think about it differently. I'm not busy trying to force it into my intellect. You know, when you have to cut something from every side until you force it into your suitcase, and at that point there's nothing left. I'm not busy taking my my experiences and surgically amputating them, it or them, in order for it to fit into me. I'm not doing that. Nor am I going into a state of denial making believe it doesn't exist by repressing it, which means it's just there in a more powerful way because it's unconscious and it's going to come out in all weird, mysterious ways. I can create space for every emotion. I can create space for every experience. I can create space for the fact that my head is being bombarded and I can create space for the fact that my heart is going through a very, very powerful challenge. And it's not easy, this challenge. And yet, I could say, Vani tamid imach. I can open myself up to the infinity that flows within my soul and in my brain, and to the infinity that flows and vibrates through every moment of existence, and fall into divine infinity, to Ein Saif, which transcends Seichel. And that's what Amuna is. Amunah is that relationship. This is what the Jews ate for 40 years. They ate food that they said, we don't know what this is. Moshe says, this is your greatest source of bread. This is your greatest source of comfort. 
This is what will ultimately nourish you in the most powerful, powerful way. This is the gift of faith. This is the gift of Amunah. This is the gift of the man, which came in the schus of Moshe, who's known as Ma, Venachnu Ma. Moshe says in Parshat Rav, Venachnu Ma, what are we, Ma? That's what they said about the man, Man, which is Ma, as the Rajbam says, what is it? This is going to be your food. Your food every day is going to be your ability to be able to look at the world, to look at reality, to look at yourself, to look at life and say, Ma, what is it? In other words, there's always the question, what is it? I don't feel the need to force it into my mathematical brain. I don't feel the need to reduce it to my limited way of defining the meaning of life. I can always be open to the infinite question of ma. What? And even if there are those things that I know and I grasped, there's yet a deeper layer, which I don't know and I didn't grasp. The Baal Shem Tov said, for every question, I have an answer. But for every answer, I have a question. Professor Elie Wiesel, Olav Shalom, was a world-renowned Nobel laureate, a Holocaust survivor. He came from Sigit, family of Chsidim, Vizhnitz, survived the Holocaust, lost his parents and some siblings. And he passed away a few years ago in New York. And Elie Wiesel once shared a story about his hometown. He said in his hometown there was a young man who was a mavakish. He was a seeker. And he always had the same question. Why am I here? Why are we here? Why was the world created? Some people don't lose sleep over this question. But some people do. Why did my soul come down into the world? What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of everything? And usually I think... Every one of us, at least once in a while, maybe once in 10 or 20 years, you know, the question hits you. Often, you know, I'm distracted by, uh, (laughs) many of us try to numb ourselves to this question, or we just never ask it. But this man was was restless. And Elie Wiesel said every great rabbi who would come to town, he would always go and, and beg for an answer, but never got a satisfying answer to really explain what's the purpose of life. Like, what is this all about? And Elie Wiesel says, once a grand Rebbe, a grand spiritual master came to town, and this fellow in great anticipation went to see him, and he says, Rebbe, you have to answer me this question. Why, 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 why are we here? What is this all about? Why so much pain? What's the mystery of life? What is this all about? He says, the Rebbe gave him a smack. And he looks at him and he says, Rebbe, why are you slapping me? What wrong have I committed by asking what is such an important and vital question? And Elie Wiesel says, this great master looked this man in the eyes and lovingly said, why do you want to ruin a great question? with a foolish answer. You see, it's the answers that divide us. It's the questions that unite us. 
I assume that this story lends itself to different levels and states of interpretation. And I'll allow each and every one of you to interpret it in his, in her or his own unique way. But one aspect that I took out of it was, he was explaining to him that the real power of the man is that it didn't have a name. If the man would have had a name, it couldn't be the bread that would feed the Jewish people in the desert for 40 years. It would never be the food that would serve the Jewish people during those 40 years and as a result feed the Jewish people till today. Because the food that the Jews ate during those 40 years in the desert is what built the first generation of the Jewish nation that became the foundation for all of Jewish history till this day. If the man would have been given a name, if it would have been called bread or matzah or vegetables, let's go with the healthy food, it would have never been the bread that could have sustained the Jewish people because it would have been reduced to a name. Because it was called man, which means what? Kiloyadu mahu. This is the food that opened them up every single day. To loyadu. To tachlis hayediyah The ultimate knowledge after everything, after learning and investigating and inquiring and scrutinizing and mastering and growing deeper and deeper, the ultimate yediyah is shaloyneh the ultimate knowledge is that I know that I don't know you and I'm fine with that. Because knowledge is just a limited way of experiencing the truth of life. Brilliant way, important way, wonderful way. We love it. We love knowledge and wisdom, but it's a limited way. It's one channel to experience the full grandeur and majesty of life. That's not the bread that would feed them for those 40 years. What the man represented was the divine energy that was being inculcated into the Jewish people on a daily basis through this food called man, which allowed them to be able to say, Ani tamid imach, I am always with you. Thank you very much. We'll take some questions. First question. Okay, Rabbi, I love your lectures. May I please ask about something I heard from a very distinguished rabbi yesterday. He said not to listen to what anyone says about the vaccine and to give up our fears and listen to the top. He said everybody should vaccinate themselves. What do you think about that? Okay, that's not really the discussion of our class, but you should discuss it with... uh, you know, people you respect who are experts in medicine and also in the latest developments in terms of COVID-19 to be able to get clarity. How does Bitochen relate to this discussion about Amuna? Well, I think uh, Bitochen means trust. It's this trust that I may not be able to see and understand, and appreciate, and, but I could still, I could still feel comfort, I could still feel love, 
and therefore I can enthusiastically embrace my life with passion and with joy and not by denying and amputating anything. You see, the beautiful, the beautiful benefit here of this insight is, and we probably have to, have to explain this much more, but I'll just say the insight. We often feel that amuna means that I have to be able to say that this makes sense, that this is good in the sense that I can perceive it. And for that, I sometimes have to do gymnastics with my brain that are not realistic. I have to start playing games with myself. And you don't have to do that. Sometimes in my brain, I cannot wrap myself around it. I cannot wrap my brain around this. This hurts. This doesn't make sense. This is such a disappointment. This is, this is causing so much heartache. This is not what the plan was. I'm talking about people who experience in life things that they really did not expect and they did not want and... It, 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 it changes their whole lives. Or at least it changes major parts of their lives. I don't have to force this reality into my brain and, and, and try to manipulate my understanding and say, no, but really it makes sense and, and it's going to be better for me in a year and it's, it's cl- going to cleanse me from my sins, so I'm going to get a better Elam Haba. You may be right, you may be wrong, but what I'm doing now is I am really denying my experiences completely. And it could turn a person into, uh, sometimes into an unhealthy person, I would say. Because there's so much repression and manipulation going on. Emuna means that actually it may not fit into my brains. And you know what? And I could feel that tension. And therefore I can cry. And I can grieve. I can grieve. Why do you grieve? Why is there grieving? Why is there titch above? Just trust God. The answer is because, in my experience, it may be a very painful reality. And you have to respect that. I have to respect that. God respects that. You were given a brain for a reason. A brain is not a curse. A brain is a blessing. <laughs> the brain is a blessing, and I have to use it as much as I can. And Muna is the ability that, together with that, I should also be able to dance to the infinite song of life. That's, that's how I understand the, the, the value of what the Svasemis is teaching us here. Next question. As usual, brilliant, brilliant class. The piece of Tanya you brought in spoke directly to me. What I understand from this class is that intelligence and understanding is a limited vehicle, even though it's a crucial vehicle. It can bring us to the foyer, to the to the introduction to Amunah, it can bring us to the door of Amunah through Yediyah Hashem. But to experience transcendence, we need to let go of all definitions, perceptions, expectations. Is this the idea of Shvira Sakelem as experienced by human beings here in this world? Very articulate. I think you said it perfectly. Our tools, our, our knowledge and perception are important vehicles, blessed vehicles, and vehicles that can bring us to the door. And they have to bring us to the door. But there's a certain threshold that I can only cross through Emunah. Not because my knowledge is evil, and not because we don't like intellect, and not because we love cults. We don't like cults. We loathe cults. But because it's the ability to understand, and that itself I can understand, 
that ultimate knowledge is, the ultimate knowledge is when I reach the point that I know that I don't know. And therefore the experience of transcendence, the sensation of transcendence, demands for me to let go. To let go. To let go of my expectations. To let go of how I understand reality. How I perceive reality. What I expect is the right thing and the wrong thing. If this is what Shvira Sakelem means, that I don't know. Shvira Sakelem in Kabbalah is, is the description for the world of Toihu. Explained, explained at length in, in Kabbalah and in Hasidus. Especially in the Maimarim of the Alter Rebbe. What Shvira Sakelem is. You're saying that our kalim have to break in order for us to experience the ultimate light. Uh, I don't know if that's the meaning of Shvira Sakalim, but I would say that yes, I have to allow myself to emancipate myself from the various structures and vessels in which I may be submerged in in order to be able to open myself up to a different journey, which is what Amuna is, what Amuna and Betachen is. Beautifully, beautifully said. Next question. Okay, I did the questions from chat. Now I'll do the questions from uh, from the yeshiva.net. Question number one. Today's teenagers love to say, whatever. They named it man, what? Is this what today's teenagers mean? I don't know. Unfortunately, I'm not a teenager anymore, even though I would like to be. So I don't know if that's what the teenagers mean, but maybe. The Jews didn't know what man is. They also didn't know what awaited them in the desert, what they would eat, what they are going, where they're going ultimately. When accepting the Torah, they didn't know what it contained. Nasev It's like having a child. It's going into marriage. Yes, you know what you know, but you have to trust and really embrace the reality. Yeah, very well. Okay, next question. It seems what you're saying is that what the Jews needed those 40 years in the desert, eating the manna to get the munna into their DNA. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. These were the years when they got the munna into their DNA, wondering if it could have happened any other way. Maybe not. Is this exactly what they needed? Apparently this is what they needed. So what you're, expl- you're saying that to name something is to limit it, to put it into a box. But I thought the name is the channel of energy. Good question. And the answer is it's true. Both are true. To name something is to reveal it, but also to conceal it. When I name something, I reveal it because I, I allow people to talk about it I allow myself to describe it. I name it by its various features. So in many ways, I allow it to be expressed, to be displayed, to be talked about, to be developed. That's true. On another level, I'm also concealing it because there is a space within reality that is beyond language, beyond description. And by describing it, I reduce it into that definition. So we do live in a world of names. We live in a world where we seek categorizations, and that is very beneficial and very useful. But we have to always be aware of the fact that reality 
transcends names. And each name, as much as it reveals, it also conceals. The Alter Rebbe Balatani writes in the Kudat Parshas Bahar that a soul on its own doesn't need names. What's the name of your soul? Your soul doesn't have a name. It's the flow of the soul into the body when it gets restricted and defined by the body, that's when you're given a name. And that's why the name represents the flow from the soul in and through the body. It's like the electricity flowing through the body. That's when you're given a name. But the soul itself, in fact, is nameless. And not because your soul doesn't have an identity, but because the identity cannot be limited by names. Okay, next question. Okay, this was just so wonderful, so inspiring, especially during these challenging times. This is exactly what we needed to hear in order to be able to appreciate the times that we are in. Yeah, that's why I uh, chose this piece. Does this mean practically that I should allow Hashem to be my guide even though so many things are uncomfortable and the fear of the unknown is so powerful, nonetheless it's the right thing to do? I think what this means is, part of what it means is that part of our DNA, part of our DNA as Jews and part of our responsibility to the world is to be able to operate on this level of amuna in a very real way. And what it means is that I can completely let go of my rational expectations of what life is supposed to look like, what my family is supposed to look like, what my marriage is supposed to look like, what my inner mental space is supposed to look like. And now when it doesn't look like that, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed, I'm depressed, I'm dejected. I could feel pain. But Amunah is the ability of knowing that the ultimate truths of life are unknown. Not because I'm stupid or lazy. I may be not lazy at all, and I may be not stupid at all. But relative to absolute reality, I have to have that humility that I don't need to know how it's all going to work out and why it makes sense. Not because I don't like sense and not because I'm afraid of questions. I'm not af- we're not afraid of questions. I-, I make this distinction because people sometimes understand the moon as being blind and you're not allowed to ask questions and you're not allowed to ask anything, you're not allowed to understand anything. It's just like being indoctrinated in the way it is. The way the Tanya explains it, the way the Svasam explains it, it's the exact opposite. There's a lot you can explain, and there's a lot you can prove, and you should. And there's many questions that could be answered. But then there comes a real point in life where I have to be able to surrender my intellectual ego to the ultimate reality which transcends any brain, and no thought can ever grasp it. And there's a very profound comfort there. Because if you trust it, it can lead you, it can carry you, it can hold on to you. As Moshe Rabbeinu will say later, God carries the Jewish people in the desert like a mother carrying her infant who's nursing from the mother. The infant doesn't understand what milk is and the infant doesn't know exactly the vitamins and the nutrients that exist in mom's milk to be able to let it grow. But the infant knows it puts its mouth near the mom and it receives this sense of comfort and pleasure and delight. 
like the Navi says, like an infant who is comfort, comforted by his mom's milk. So the man is like God's milk. I'm not, I'm not giving the name milk because there's no name for man. But it was, they didn't have to understand everything in that desert. Sometimes life is a desert. No plants, no fertility. Nothing is fertile, nothing is growing. How are they going to live here? But that confidence, that surrender allowed them not only to live, but to be able to celebrate. To be able to celebrate with joy. And it's never to the exclusion of the brain. It's not about destroying your brain and and getting angry at your mind. No, it's embracing your brain and elevating it. It's elevating your mind and utilizing it to the best. And then understanding that the mind itself wants to open itself up to that which is beyond the mind. Question, is it possible that a less spiritual reason for naming man what could be that it didn't have a definite taste, but could be any taste that anybody wanted? Yes, I said that in the beginning of the class. That may be on the literal level why to name it man. And Rashi says man means food because it's the generic. So I said maybe what he also means it's the quintessential food because it allows itself to be tasted like every food. By the way, it's all connected. The reason the man did not have a limited taste is because it represented infinity. And whenever something is infinite, it doesn't have a way to be grasped. That's the reason why the man could be tasted in so many different ways. Taste comes from a certain chemistry, but infinity is the source of all chemistry. So therefore, every type of taste could come from the man. It depended on your consciousness and your desire, because it's the desire that you confer upon infinity which will allow you the taste of that type of, inf- of that part of infinity. Infinity is channeled into each individual according to their capacity and perception. So if I tasted this in the man, this was the man. And if you tasted this, this is the man. It's like we often speak in our Hasidic classes from the Balatanya. What is God? And the answer is, I will be for you what I will be for you. And I will be for her what I will be for her. You describe your relationship with God. The God that you taste, that is God. It's like the man. Man is the food of God, right? It's God's food. All food is God's food, but most food comes through the processes of nature. But man was directly God's food. What taste does God have? And the answer is, whatever you're ready to taste, whatever your, your passion is, whatever you see in it, whatever you want to see in it, you will see in it. And that's true. And the opposite taste is also true, because that's what infinity is. So it's actually all connected. Kuti Sikhis Khelik Dalit Akiv makes this point at length. Okay, I wish everybody a wonderful day. Yes. Texas, go ahead. Let me unmute here. Hi, thank you. I have a question about how does this um how do we put this into practice? I think there's this idea that I think maybe it comes from a secular source that faith starts where intelligence ends, but that seems to contradict most of what we learn in Chassidus. I'm, I'm trying to understand how does a person know when their intelligence or their seeking of understanding Hashem is helping them get closer to Hashem and when it's actually hurting them. Because it, it, you know, it could seem like a holy pursuit, like I'm only learning, I'm only understanding, but maybe that is the source of your lack of 
faith in God to begin with. So right. how does a person like stay self-aware to know when their pursuit of learning is the right thing for them and when it's maybe should come after something else? I don't know if I'm expressing it. Clearly. Okay, great question. The question that was asked was, there is an expression that faith begins when intelligence ends. Is that, the, is that true? And how do we know when I'm learning and using my mind if it's bringing me closer to faith or actually distracting me from faith? It's a wonderful question. And that's why the words of the Jewish philosophers that we studied earlier in the class are so meaningful. The expression is, The ultimate knowledge is that I know that I can't know you. That's the ultimate knowledge. The ultimate knowledge is that I don't know you. Whoops. Just shut this. In other words, there's different levels of knowledge and different levels of ignorance. There's an ignorance that comes before knowledge. That's like the behema that's lower than a person, right? We're not extolling that. Sometimes a person is, is, is just ignorant. Then there is knowledge that is biased. Listen to what I'm telling you. There's knowledge that's biased, meaning it's knowledge. It's sophisticated knowledge, but it's all driven by bias. I have an agenda, and therefore I make sure that my knowledge suits my agenda. Like the Gemara Torah says, when, you, when, you, when I take bribes, it blinds me, because we can find rationalizations and justifications for everything but it's really a bias. That's not real knowledge. It's knowledge that's driven by agendas. Now, all of us have biases, there's no question. But the more I'm aware of my biases, the more I could not get stuck and defined by them. Okay. Then there is a knowledge that's, that I try at least, it shouldn't be driven by bias. I try to be honest. I try to be open. And that's very powerful knowledge. That's the knowledge that each of us seeks to cultivate. And then we come to the peak of it, and that is enlightened ignorance. There's a beautiful article I once saw by uh, Professor Dr. Jacob Brower, neuroscientist at McGill University for many years. My neighbor. Huh? I grew up on the same block. What's your maiden name? Ah, okay. So your neighbor. So he has an article... He writes about four levels of knowledge. He calls it ignorance. I don't. I saw it many years ago, but I think it was ignorance, uh, biased knowledge, knowledge, and enlightened ignorance. So some maybe different names, but the point is, there's ignorance that comes before knowledge. There's knowledge where you're just trying to be ignorant. In other words, the knowledge confirms my ignorance. Basically, I'm not really looking for truth. I'm looking to remain ignorant so I could believe what I want to believe. Like sometimes atheists will make sure to disprove that God exists. So thus they could, uh, they could continue to believe that God doesn't exist. And it seems very scientific, but it's really with a very deep bias and agenda. If somebody wants to uh, live a certain lifestyle without any limitations, you know, they're invested in making sure there's no God. So that's another form of ignorance. Then there is knowledge where I'm really open, at least to some degree, I want to be open to truth. And then there is enlightened ignorance. Enlightened ignorance means ignorance that comes from enlightenment. The ultimate enlightenment is ignorance. When you understand this, then knowledge is never a contradiction to this. On the contrary, real knowledge helps you and opens you up to this more and more and more. And I'll tell you why. 
Because real knowledge is always looking for the Ein Seif, for the infinity. So real knowledge is actually helping you get there. And that's the difference. If the knowledge is keeping you stuck and making you arrogant and smug and complacent, then it takes you away from this. But real knowledge opens you up to how much you don't know. And then the more I know, the more I appreciate how much I don't know. So the knowledge itself is fueling this humility because real knowledge opens me up to the fact that there's so much more that I don't know. So I learn more and I learn more. And the more I learn, the more I appreciate how much I don't know because I learned enough to realize how much I don't know. It actually invites me and it creates the foundation, the springboard, the catalyst. It opens you up to this infinity. That's when you know that the two are never mutually exclusive. Verstehst? I think so. So you're saying is if a person, when they're studying Tyra, if they experience the feeling of not knowing, that means there's space for the Abishter in their learning? Yeah. You know, I, I always see it. I gave a lot of shurim in the past on the, the work of the Rogachover Gon, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, Tzofnas Paneach. And uh, the, way, the, the reason I started to give shurim in him is because when I grew up, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, would always quote him constantly. So obviously it piqued my interest and I started to learn his works. And he was considered one of the greatest scholars in, in Jewish history, certainly in last generations. They called him Sar HaTayra. You read his works and he reveals unbelievable depths in what you're learning. But what you're more struck is by the infinity of it. Meaning even what I understand, it's like, wow, how much is there that I don't understand? So the knowledge itself is so filled with a humility of the infinity that I can't grasp my brain around. In other words, there's knowledge and there's appreciation, but there's always the display that this is only the tip of the iceberg. There's always this experience that you're dealing with infinity and therefore as much as you grasp, which is powerful and amazing and life-changing, but there's so much more. And that's the type of Torah that is never contradictory to Amuna. On the contrary, it, 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 it increases the Amuna because it shows me actually how much I don't know. Like he says here, the Tachlis Hayyidiyah, the ultimate knowledge is when I, don't, when I know that I don't know. Why is that the ultimate knowledge? Because that means I reach the deepest place of knowledge. If I didn't reach the deepest place of knowledge, I won't say that. But when I reach the deepest place of knowledge... That's when it's clear to me that silence is much more real. It's clear to me that that which is beyond knowledge is much more real, but only when I reach the ultimate place of knowledge. I know it's a little abstract, but... Uh, no, I, I actually feel that every time I listen to the Maimarim, I experience that. And I used... I mean, till it, it always resonated as a negative feeling. Like, I can't, I can't even understand this. No, no, no. I don't understand. There's so much I don't... So you're saying that that feeling is not necessarily a negative... It's not negative at all. There is the frustration that I want to understand something, and I should try and work until I understand it and get it. And that's very, very worthwhile, and that's important. But there will always be a component that remains elusive. And that elusiveness is not a tragedy. It's not something to frustrate you. It only frustrates me if I have to if I want everything to fit into my intellectual ego. 
But if I'm open to the fact that real truth is infinite, I can become comfortable with that. I can become comfortable with the fact that there's always more. There's an unbelievable story, a beautiful story that describes this. The story is that one of the students of the Maggid of Mizrich was Reb Menachem Mendel of Haradak, or they call him sometimes Reb Mendel of Vitebsker. He came from Vitebsk. He wrote a sefer called Pri Haaretz. When the Maggid passed away, he was considered one of the great successors of the Mizritcher Maggid. He passed away uh, in, I think, Tovkov Memches, uh, which would be 1788. He ultimately left Russia and he moved to, uh, to Tveria, where he's buried. He moved to Israel. This was the, the first Aliyah of the Hasidim in the 1770s. So uh, the story is, after the Maggid passed away, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, used to go to him for Yom Tov sometimes. So the story is that he was once there, Simchas Torah, and they were waiting to start Hakafas, and Reb Mendel was not coming out. And they waited and waited and waited, and he was not coming out. So they sent the Alter Rebbe, due to his stature, to go in and see what is going on. So the Alter Rebbe knocked on the door, and he went in, and he tells Reb Mendele, the whole crowd is waiting. Why don't you come in? Why don't you come out? So Reb Mendele tells the Alter Rebbe, he says, I'll tell you why. I was preparing for Atareisa, and suddenly I realized that there are a hundred ways to interpret the Pasuk, Atareisa Ladas Ki Hashem Ho'alekim Einaid Movada. And until I don't grasp those a hundred ways, how can I come out and lead the community? It's, it's inappropriate. You know, it's like a doctor will start treating a patient when he hasn't mastered the material on this illness. I can't. How can I go and lead the community for Akafas? There's a hundred interpretations in Atta, Reis, Ladas that I have not yet mastered. When I finish getting them, then I'll come out. So the Altarebbe told him, Something very moving. He said, you know, sometimes, Rebbe, he said, Rebbe, you know, sometimes you're looking from the distance at a mountain. And it seems very genuinely that if you just walk, you know, for two, three hours, you'll touch the mountain because you're looking at it and it's like, okay, I have to get from here to there and I'll be there. And you do that and you get there. You know what happens? And suddenly you see that the mountain... (laughs) is yet more distant. So you say, okay, I'll go a little more, and I'll get it. Then you go more, and you see it's far more distant. And you continue going, and in each destination, you only realize how distant it is. So he tells Reb Mendele, he said, you're going to master all the hundred interpretations. You know what's going to happen then? You're going to discover that there are another 200 interpretations that you did not get. So you'll sit on them as well. And then you'll discover 400 that you did not get. That's the journey of life. He smiled and he said, you're right. And he came out for Hakafas. And the two always work in tangent. There's always, you know, that diffusion of the two. Can it be a source of frustration? Yeah, the Rebbe once said in a Sikha, Shabbos Ekev Tavshin Chav Gimel, 1963, printed in Lekut HaSikha's Chelek Dalet Moshe says, he says, God made you hungry and he afflicted you and he fed you the man which you and your fathers never heard of. So the Mepharshim say, what do you mean he made you hungry? The man made you not hungry. He didn't make you hungry and feed you the man. He fed you, fed you the man so you wouldn't be hungry. 
So the Rebbe said, whenever you give somebody food of finiteness, they feel satiated. When you give them food of infinity, they always remain hungry. Because it opens them up to that which they don't know. It opens them up to that which still transcends them. So the man, by definition, was something that kept them hungry because it's the food of infinity. And the food of infinity only triggers a deeper appetite because it it opens you up to the infinite expansiveness and the infinite horizons. And the only way to make peace with that is by humbly letting go of my need to control. When I could let go of that need to control, then I could be comfortable with the hunger, with the yearning for infinity. Verstehst? Would you say there is a path that doesn't contradict that, that if someone does seek to understand, let's say, like last time you recommended a minor, and I wouldn't have found it on my own because it was old, and it was like, it, it was like very illuminating, very illuminating. Which minor did I tell you to learn? I don't remember. And I feel like, is there more of that that is, is there a first, second, and third? Like the Mimer, the Mimer Malois me ma'makim and look at the Torah, right? Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. That's that's an unbelievable Mimer, yeah, unbelievable. That that so, kares could only happen on the level of Yaakov, right? Not on the level of Yisrael. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. That's a life changing Mimer, life changing Mimer. I, I felt that even when I was listening to your classes on Basi Lagani, even though it wasn't exactly the same ideas, I felt like more prepared to come to that Mimer. So I'm wondering, is there more of that that for people like me? Of course. There's infinitely more of that. Infinitely more of that. Where do you find it? Like, how do you start? I don't know where to start. Well, I can help you. If you want, I can uh, give you some more Maimarim on that level. And uh, we begin. The journey always begins. The Bush says in Prikayavis, you don't have to finish the work, but we don't have the freedom to say, so let me not begin. Especially in our generation, when we're trying to complete the journey, so certainly everybody has to take a jump into the infinite, a leap into the infinite. But I can help you with that. There's a lot, lot more my marim of that plane. Not just a lot. Uh, endless, at least in quality. Yeah, okay. But there's only one condition, and that is that you have to share it with others. I do. do. Okay, good. That's the point. It's not the only point. The point is you as well, but in addition to that. I think just by definition, if you live life in that mode, you're automatically going to, like, whatever you, if you're really taking it in, it's naturally going to come out. Yeah. People don't, people don't realize, people, great people, good people, people don't realize the infinite richness and joy and geschmack that chassidus can give their lives, their marriages, their relationships, their relationships with their children, with themselves, their own inner mental anxiety and stress. They simply don't realize it. They think it's just, you know, spiritual holy texts written by serious Jews, and the people really don't realize that when you learn chassidus well and consistently on a daily basis in a real profound way, it's literally oxygen 
It's life-changing. It transforms everything. Your mood, your disposition, your marriage, the way you talk to your kids, the way you deal with your teenagers, the way you deal with stress, physical, emotional, psychological, the way you look at yourself, the way you look at other people. Your whole posture in life is elevated. And those are the treasures that were given for our generations. You know, we learned about Bisbos HaOitzris, the king splurges the deepest treasures in order to win the war. Those are the Oitzris, the Oitzris of the Baal Shem Tev and his students and of the Alter Rebbe and his students and of all the Rebbes and all of the great masters all the way till the Rebbe. These are literally the, the treasures that were splurged to be able to help the children. The famous metaphor of the Alter Rebbe, you know, that the drop, the drop of life should come into the prince and... Uh, and uh, really elevate our lives to the point of uh, extraordinary heights, especially in terms of simcha and menucha. It doesn't take away all the pain that people have, but it just it gives so much fuel, so much power, so much comfort, so much depth. And until you don't learn it, you don't know it. It's not you. You can't believe somebody else because it's not about believing somebody else. It's about eating the man. You got to eat the man. <laughs> When you eat the man, you're eating emuna. I just realized that man is associated also with emuna. The middle letters of emuna are mem nun. And we say imun, it's trust, emuna is faith. So man is also associated, I just realized, with emuna. So it's very uh, consistent with this whole idea. So you can't just believe in emuna. You have to eat emuna. How do you eat emuna? You learn chesidus, you eat the man. I would say... The Rebbe said in the Sicha that uh, in Torah you have bread from heaven and bread from earth. Bread from heaven, bread from heaven is nigla. Bread from earth is nigla the Torah. It's the whole all the, all the Mishnah, Gemara, Halacha, which is basically Torah Shabal Peh developed on earth, dealing with earth. Zrayim, Mayid, Nashim, Nezikin dealing with earthly matters, developed by human minds living on earth. And that's the divine revelation that's called bread from heaven. And you have to toil for it. You plow, and you plant, and you harvest, and you thresh, and you winnow, and you select. The whole process, Siddurah, the pass of making bread from earth. And then he said, is It's bread from heaven. It's heavenly bread. It's bread that brings heaven to us. It reveals the oneness of the world, the divinity, the godliness and everything. So that's the lechem and hashamayim. Generally, all Torah is called bread from heaven. But within Torah itself, chesidus is called chesidus, pnimi yisatayr is called lechem and hashamayim. And when somebody is going through, you know, hardships in life, and who's not, without that pnimius, without the Torah sanister, without the man, without the lechem and hashamayim, it's, it's, it's so much more difficult. It's so much more difficult and we often feel like victims and, and frightened and we surrender to fear and despondency. So this is really the gift that we have now, the man, that can give us this matana that this Vasemus talks about here. It alters your perception of reality and then hopefully how you experience reality. Like the mind-altering substance in like the best way, I guess. 
mind-altering substances in an integrated way. That's the key, in an integrated way. Question. Somebody asks a question here. Let's see. Does this mean that we are forever students? Of course. The Balatanya writes in Lakuta Torah, that's why a Talmud Chachem is called a Talmud Chachem, not a Chachem. Why not a Chachem? Because the greatest Chachem is that you always remain a Talmud Chachem. You always remain a student of Chachma. Always. Chachma is Koyach Ma. The ability to say what? Chachma is a combination of two words. Chav Ches Memhe. Koyach Ma. The ability to say what? Ma, what? To be a student of Torah means to be a Talmud Chacham. I'm always a student of Chachma. Always a student of Chachma. Beautiful questions everybody asks. What I take away from your class is that we are forever students learning daily with every experience we encounter. Beautiful. It seems like man is everything that Hashem does. When we will sustain from within, you will taste it. Next question. If Amunah is beyond Seichel and logic, why should we bother and use our Seichel? The truth is, now I understand, there are two types of Amunah. There's Amunah that comes from inability to use the Seichel or laziness, just saying, I believe. This is the minimal level. But there's a higher level, which is pushing yourself to the limits of your seichel, and from that maximum point, realize, know, and feel that Amunah is way beyond you and not graspable with seichel. Yeah? Two fish are swimming along and talking. One asks the other, do you believe in water? The other says, I don't know. My father believed in water, but I'm not sure. Could you say again the name of the great sage that the Rebbe would always quote? The Rogachover Gon, Rabbi Yosef Rosen. Yosef Rosen, R-O-Z-E-N. He came from a city called Rogachov. They called him the Rogachover Gon, which means the genius, the prodigy of Rogachov. He passed away in 1936 on the 11th day of Adar, which was Tainus Esther that year. And... Uh, he lived in a city called Dvinsk. I think it's in Latvia. He was the rabbi of the Hasidic community in Dvinsk. He passed away in 36. And he's known in the Torah world as the Tzofnas Paneach because the names of his works are Tzofnas Paneach, which is the name that Paroi gave Yosef. His name was Yosef, Yosef Rosen. And Tzofnas Paneach means the revealer of secrets. And that's what he indeed did. He was the revealer of secrets. Everybody have a beautiful week and a beautiful day. Thank you for joining us. Hatzlacha. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.